from Mark chapter 12 and verses 18 through 27. And Sadducees came to him who say there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you were wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Thank you. You may be seated. Mark chapter 12, verses 18 through 27, if you have your copy of Scripture and would like to follow along, please turn there. Mark 12, 18 through 27. Here on this uh, 4th of July, I kept thinking of this song a while ago. I have not written it down, but there's this passage. Um, I will try to quote for you. Um, and it, it regards our nation something along the lines of when a heart and soul of a nation lay wounded and cold as a corpse. From the grave of the innocent Adam comes a song bringing joy to the sad. Your prayer has been heard and the ransom has been paid up in full. Be glad. I don't know, that's just playing around in my head today. but That's only part of the verse. My apologies for forgetting the rest. Our nation. We're reminded today of our liberty as citizens in a country that is indeed a great country. And it is a good thing that we are reminded of that. And we should be thankful. We should pray for God's mercy on our country that our freedoms will not be forfeited because of our nation's immorality, which I am sure we all are of which I'm sure we are all keenly aware. But it's always of infinitely greater importance for us, we who are citizens of God's eternal kingdom, to recall our true liberty in Christ. And our Lord Jesus guarantees it by his righteous life, by his sacrifice on the cross, by his resurrection from the dead, that glorious resurrection. And so as we gather each Lord's Day to be reminded of God's gracious promise to us fulfilled in his Son, that's really 
our focus this morning as Christians, though we do celebrate an earthly liberty, our true liberty is in Christ. This passage in Mark should bring us to rejoice in God's intention and in God's ability to fully redeem us to eternal life in Christ, to bring us into his eternal presence. And I hope you've come this way this morning to be reminded of that. All we have in Christ is so glorious and wonderful. Indeed. If you recall our previous studies in Mark, Jesus, you'll remember, beginning with chapter 11, entered Jerusalem at Passover. He makes his way now toward the cross. He's cursed the fig tree, you'll recall, in verses 12 through 14 of that chapter. He's cleansed the temple, verses 15 through 19, and he's made a powerful statement that Israel as a nation was spiritually fruitless. The old covenant given to condemn their sin, to point them toward their desperate need for a Savior, a Savior God had promised, well, that had been twisted. It had been fashioned into this works-based righteousness of a religion and its religious leaders when the promised Savior arrived didn't recognize him. Nor did they receive him. Jerusalem as the center of worship would be destroyed. And so having served its purpose of pointing to Christ, the nation and its ceremonial worship was to be set aside. God's redemptive purpose in Christ now moves outward from the Jews to the Gentile world and all according to scripture, but they failed to see it. And Jesus encouraged the few who did look to him in faith, that ragtag bunch of disciples minus Judas Iscariot. He's the mediator of a new and better covenant of grace as the writer of Hebrews so beautifully tells us. A covenant that moved beyond the old covenant shadows and the types entrusted to national Israel's care. Paul tells us early in Romans chapter 9 of how these things were entrusted to them. The Lord's coming death, his resurrection would be the fulfillment of the meaning of the Levitical priesthood and the temple worship. The faithful disciples, however, didn't yet grasp that. But they had faith in Jesus. The religious leaders failed to anticipate the Christ of Scripture. Though he was all over the place. In particular, in the writings of Moses. Rejecting obvious truth, they challenged Jesus' authority. You'll remember in verses 27 through 33 of chapter 11. But he summarily calls into question their loyalty. 
Are you loyal to God and his kingdom? He, in essence, tells them in that parable of the tenants. You'll remember at the beginning of chapter 12, rich with all kinds of symbolism, reaching back into the Old Testament for that, that symbolism of the vineyard that represented the nation. And the son comes to the vineyard and they reject him after rejecting the prophets before. All the messengers of God they did not listen to. And when the son came, they did not listen to him. And they cast him out of the vineyard and they killed him, saying, This is the heir. Let's kill him. And the kingdom will be ours. That kingdom also represented by the vineyard. So this chapter records the religious leaders' attempt to hold their position. They don't like what Jesus has said, and so they want to retaliate. Let's question his authority. What do you think about paying taxes? Well, we've got him. If he says pay them, well, he's against our people because we don't like paying these taxes. If he says you shouldn't pay them, then he's against Caesar and we can quickly hand him over to the Roman authorities as a traitor to Rome. Jesus said, give to Caesar what's Caesar's, but give to God what's God's. Pay your taxes for the earthly kingdom. God has ordained it, but give to God repentance and faith, if indeed you are in his kingdom. But now they're going to do the same type of thing. They'll, they'll test his theology against that of the Sadducees first here in this passage, and then in the following passage, verses 28 through 34, it will be the theology of the Pharisees. These did not get along. They were at opposite ends in large part by way of theology, but they were the religious leaders. And now they were uniting against Christ. The Pharisees, you'll remember, on the issue of taxes had employed the help of the Herodians. They were a, more of a political group. But all of these normally were at odds with each other. Now they come together. Jesus is a threat. But what will actually happen is that Jesus proves decisively none of them passed their own test. They say they have the true religion. You don't even pass your own test for true religion. You reach back into the scriptures and you say that's where your position begins, but you don't even know it. You don't even understand it. You don't realize what it's about. Theoretically, you rely on scripture, and so do lots of earthly false religions. But like many Israelites from Moses to Christ, they did not accept what God revealed by faith. They did not believe the overarching promise of Christ progressively revealed in scripture. The writer of Hebrews again, chapter 4 and verse 2 of that book mentions this. 
Don't be like those Old Testament Israelites who heard the word but did not receive it by faith. But these leaders and so many in Israel had a view of God's purpose and plan that was only partial. It was incomplete. And so Jesus would say to them in John 5, verses 39 and 40, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness of me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Well, that's the background here. So in Mark 12 and the verses before us, Jesus points us to God's intention to save sinners and his ability to save sinners, both being clearly expressed in Old Testament scripture and fulfilled in Christ Jesus our Lord. His encounter with the Sadducees emphasizes their lack of faith in that regard. Oh, you've heard the scripture. You've misinterpreted the scripture. You don't believe the scripture because you don't believe me. And so his encounter emphasizes a lack of faith. First in their question to him and then in his answer in his response. I didn't have a title for the sermon before the bulletin went to press, but I think I would call it now Scripture and the Power of God. Does that sound okay? Good. All right. Scripture and the Power of God. And that's what we're going to learn about this morning. I hope, I trust that you hear the Word of God and you receive it by faith. That's what we're to do. Receive it by faith. Not by our own interpretation, but as God plainly reveals it. It's not a, a mystery, this testimony of Christ, God's promise of a Savior. God calls us today, before we even go any further, I remind you, He calls us to know that we're the sinners, that He says we are, and that Jesus Christ is the Savior He says that His, his Son is. So you, the first is repentance, the second is faith. Repent and believe the gospel. That is what Jesus began as, er, preaching as he started his earthly ministry. Know you're the sinner, God says you are. Know that I'm the Savior that God says I am. Scripture and the power of God. Let's look at their question first this morning. Sadducees were, they were conservative, I guess we might say, in that they did believe Scripture, but they were liberal in their theology. Does that make sense? How they interpreted it, what they thought that it meant. Their thoughts about God were not God's thoughts. And their question to Jesus here stems from that perspective. They primarily regarded only the books of Moses as authoritative. They didn't really give much consideration to the, to the prophecy and to the, to the Psalms, to the historical books and the wisdom literature and so forth. That wasn't their concern. They were interested in the law, 
only as it benefited them, obviously. They wanted to know what Moses said. They found no reason to embrace the supernatural, no resurrection, no angels, no spiritual realm, as Luke writes in the book of Acts, chapter 23, verse 8. Pharisees embraced all of that, said Luke, but the Sadducees did not embrace that. Their question is designed to make Jesus choose either their theology or the Pharisees' theology. We can't get you to say anything incriminating against Rome, so we're going to pitch you against our adversaries theologically, and we are theirs, and you make a choice. Which one do you want? That's verse 18. Verse 19, they address him as teacher, and that's really um, not genuine. You can almost hear the disdain in their voice. Teacher, we want to ask you a question. They had no respect for him. We, we find that throughout all the Gospels, but they had respect for Moses. And it's to Moses that they refer here with this question. God's command regarding a kinsman redeemer, especially what is known as the law of leveret or brother-in-law marriage. Find that in Deuteronomy chapter 25 and verses 5 through 10, but they summarize it well. Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. That's it in a nutshell. Its purpose in national Israel was to perpetuate a, a physical line. Someone dies prematurely, they have no children, especially a male heir, then his brother, presumably who is unmarried, if he has one, is to take that woman as wife and raise up a son, a male heir, and that will be considered the deceased brother's son. And he will receive the deceased brother's inheritance and so on. As I understand it, that wasn't unique to Israel. It was, it was a practice in the time of the patriarchs, but God, like certain other things, circumcision being one of them, includes that in his dealings with Israel. And so it was certainly to provide an inheritance physically. But its true purpose, what it represented in shadowy form, was Christ's willful obedience toward ensuring an eternal inheritance for his destitute, if you will, brothers and sisters. He is the kinsman redeemer. He is the kinsman redeemer who's willing to take the wife that has no husband. All of that picturing what we are without Christ. That wonderful story of Boaz and Ruth in the book of Ruth, chapter 2 in particular, Naomi tells Ruth, he's our close relative he will probably be willing to do this for us because you'll recall Ruth's husband had died and 
he had no offspring. So they come and they say, we've got him now. Let's lay out this hypothetical, or at least it appears to be hypothetical. I find it kind of hard to believe that actually happened. But maybe there were really seven brothers and this happened to them. And they all die having taken her as wife and no children. And the wife, last of all, dies. They don't see the kinsman redeemer. They don't see the, the one willing to take the wife and provide an inheritance. They don't see that. They choose to use it to discredit the doctrine of resurrection because they just didn't find that in their reading of Moses' writings. How... How normal that is for people who wish to take the scripture and twist it, even in their own Christian traditions, whatever they might be, and say, well, this is what we want this to mean, so that's what it's going to mean. It fits our theology. It fits how we want to look at God. How do you look at God? I believe it was R.C. Sproul who said, everyone's a theologian if you have a thought about God. The question is, are you a good one or a bad one? I'm sure I've quoted that before. But it's true. So, how do you see God? Then ask yourself, how do I want to see God? And be careful about taking the scripture and not seeing what God has revealed through eyes of faith, or else you'll have a very twisted theology. The Sadducees had that problem. This means there can't be a resurrection. And so they pose smugly what appears to be this hypothetical situation. Seven brothers, one wife, no offspring. Whose wife will she be if there's a resurrection? I'm sure they thought they were very, very cunning. <laughs> they essentially proposed that if there isn't a resurrection, she couldn't be, or if there is a resurrection, she could not be the wife of all seven. Why? Because that would be adultery, right? And Moses said you can't commit adultery, so... How could that be? They seem to have viewed eternal life based on our existence in the present world, and this only. And somehow, whatever eternal life will be, for our trying to keep the law of God and so forth, it's, it's going to be earthbound, or it will have the same exact form as we have now. And I, I think really, a lot of the errant versions of Christianity come from that perspective, don't they? What in the world could heaven be like? It must be just like this, except better. Just like this, except maybe without sin. Well, no, God says it's going to be exponentially better. What does the scripture say? Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those that love him. 
They relied heavily on the writings of Moses, but they clearly didn't listen to what he wrote. And Jesus said in John 5 also, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and don't seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I'll accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. He just hits the nail on the head, doesn't he? Oh, you're looking to Scripture, and you're even giving credit to the one who wrote it, but you're not listening to what he said. Because it's God who gave it to him to write. It is the word of God. It's not the word of Moses. And it's not your word. The Bible isn't our word. The Bible's God's word. And the Bible speaks of Christ from beginning to end. If you believe Moses said Jesus... You would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, listen, how will you believe my words? So the Sadducees' lack of faith is exposed. They have this terrible interpretation of Scripture. In particular, that passage in Deuteronomy about the liberate law or liberate marriage. And they obviously didn't even know God's plain intention for redemption revealed in Scripture. And so Jesus answers them on that basis. They are, as he says, first of all, and I want you to pay attention to this, they are unquestionably wrong. You don't agree with what God plainly reveals in his word. The scripture interpreting the scripture progressively revealed the covenants, all that. You don't want to believe that. You're wrong. I didn't say that. That's not my theology. That's Jesus' theology. That's the theology of the incarnate, eternal Son of God. You're wrong. Jesus says you're wrong. And the reason is partly because of their ignorance of what was revealed. He says, you just don't know it. Not that you don't know about it, not that you haven't read it, not that it's not been spoken of in the synagogue every Sabbath from the time you've been a child, not that you don't know it, not that you aren't instructed in it and very learned in Scripture, but you're wrong because you don't perceive what it actually says. That's what he means by you don't know it. But what do we know from Scripture? You can't understand it unless God enables you to understand it. These things, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians, are spiritually discerned. What does that mean? It means you must be born again, as Jesus told Nicodemus. 
You must be born again or you cannot see the kingdom. That is, you can't perceive it and you can't enter it. God, the Holy Spirit, must give you a new heart. God, the Holy Spirit, must give you eyes to see. God, the Holy Spirit, must give you ears to hear. And that is why, as we've heard repeatedly as pastor has gone through Revelation chapters 2 and 3, those words of Christ, let he who has ears to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Hear the word of God. If you really hear it, it's because the Spirit of God indwells you. You have been born from above. You perceive the kingdom. You have entered it. But they had not, these Sadducees. They didn't have those eyes. They didn't have those ears. They did not have that heart. And if they knew it in that sense, they would have looked to Christ as that Redeemer. The very passage of Scripture that they used pointed to Him. Faith would require a trust in God as sovereign to save sinners. So not only did God have the intention of saving, but God has the ability, the power to save. And so Jesus says, you not only don't know Scripture, but you don't know or believe that God has the power to save a sinner by His Word. To carry out His intention. And listen, that intention includes... It includes resurrection. It would be good for you to read at this point Luke chapter 20 and verses 34 through 40, but for the sake of time, I will not do that. It adds a little bit more information in the exchange between Christ and the Sadducees. He makes clear that marriage is for this present age only. Now don't be sad about that if you love your spouse. If you don't love your spouse, you might rejoice in that. I don't know, but I hope you love your spouse. Don't be sad that marriage is not for heaven. Jesus says here, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. You don't become an angel. They are angelic beings. You are human beings. This has nothing to do really with angels procreating or not procreating. Jesus is just saying your existence in heaven will be like the angels' existence in heaven. And it's not an earthbound thing. Yes, you're earthly, you have a physical body that you might interact with this physical creation, but there's a new heaven and there's a new earth coming. That won't require marriage. It, it won't require procreation of the human race. It won't require those relationships that are established in marriage and between parents and children, all these things reflecting God's relationship with us in some fashion. Paul speaks of that in Ephesians 5 and 6.
they established those relationships now that we might better see and better understand what it is that God has in mind for human beings whom he's created, allowed for sin, for the purpose of redemption. He wants to redeem us. And that will include the resurrection of your body. If it did not, Jesus would not have been raised from the dead. And scripture would not say that he is the firstborn among many brethren. Marriage is a shadow of our relationship as redeemed sinners to Christ. How wonderful that is to know if you're married, hey, my marriage has purpose beyond just attraction and intimacy and children and earthly families and then it's all over with? No. Your marriage reflects something. That's a good thing. We will be complete, however, in the new heavens and the new earth, in the age to come. We will be complete in Christ, in resurrection glory, in fellowship with Him, in fellowship with one another, in fellowship even with the angelic host and the things of this world that pointed us forward. They aren't necessary there. It's a, an, a level of communion and fellowship that we aren't even able in these temporal bodies that are, that are fallen still and plagued with sin. Though our spirit be redeemed, we're still in the flesh, as was mentioned earlier in the prayer. But in heaven, it, it won't be that. And yet God intends for us to be whole, body and soul, fully redeemed, the absence of sin. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, Now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. So Jesus says that they didn't even comprehend what marriage foreshadowed, much less what the law of leveret marriage pointed to. They just didn't know what the scripture meant, and neither did they believe God's power to fully redeem sinners. Do you believe that this morning? You say, I'm a Christian. You say, I have faith. What's the content of your faith? You're a member of this church. What does that mean? Why do you want to be a member of this congregation? I trust it's because we believe the scripture. We understand that we are sinners in need of a Savior and that Jesus Christ is that Savior, just as God has made so very clear in his word. And that being redeemed doesn't mean just this life only. It means the fullness of resurrection glory in a resurrection body like that of Christ. And so Jesus now turns back to the Sadducees with a passage from Moses. Exodus chapter 3, actually, specifically verse 6. 
the passage about the bush or the burning bush. Have you not read, said Jesus? As for the dead being raised, verse 26, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, a very, very fundamental passage about Israel and them knowing God? All right? They know him as Yahweh, the Lord, the eternal, self-existent, all-powerful God who makes covenant with his people and keeps covenant. And they know that because God, more specifically, the angel of the Lord, appears to them in that bush and speaks to Moses, appears to Moses rather. The pre-incarnate Christ, before our Lord, the second person of the Trinity, before he entered into humanity and took on human flesh, he was that, I believe, angel of the Lord speaking to Moses in the bush. So he was there. I think he knows that of which he speaks. This burning bush, this presence of God, this manifestation of God, and God speaks to Moses, and he says, God told Moses, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Not I was, not I will be, I am Yahweh, I am. He speaks in the present tense because he was their God then, he is their God now. He's your God. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul uses that terminology often in his writings. And listen, he's your God. He's Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever. Jesus clearly knows what he's talking about. And he said, they are not dead. They live unto God. And they live unto God because they looked forward to me. They understood what God's promise meant. He's not much of a redeemer, even if he gives his life for you, but he's still in the grave. In fact, he's no redeemer at all. It's clear Jesus' point is all the promises are summed up in me and I'm going to rise again. Now, we can read that back into it because we know the rest of the story, but he's, he's telling them very clearly, 
you don't understand what God intends by his redemption. And I am that redemption. I am that one who will bring you to the final end of all that God has planned for his people. And it will include resurrection. That's God's intention. He has the ability to bring that to pass just as he has revealed it in the Bible. His redemption of sinners takes us from the shadow to the reality that is Christ. And that's what faith in Jesus Christ means. You receive what God's revealed about Christ. You trust him to fulfill God's promise. You see you're the sinner God says you are. You see Christ as the fulfillment of the promise. And if you indeed have placed your faith in Christ, you're not only forgiven of your sin now, you not only can live for the glory of God now, albeit imperfectly, but one day this body, this weakness of flesh that you still reside in, that will be done away with in death and you will be given a resurrected body and you will live with Christ unto God forever in the presence of God in that wonderful new heavens and new earth that the book of Revelation so beautifully describes to us in those closing chapters. I'm looking very forward to getting to that point in our study of Revelation because that's what life is going to be like in the glorious presence of God with our Lord Jesus Christ. Seeing life in an earthbound perspective with no need for a redeemer, or at least not a redeemer as Jesus is, that just misses the point. As I said, if, if he's some kind of redeemer who doesn't lay down his life and then can rise from the dead, he doesn't help you at all. Any religious belief that denies the need for a redeemer or for the resurrection denies Christ. And if that's your Christianity, I'm not sure what you're doing here, for one, because that's not what you've been taught. But if that's not your Christianity, it's not Christianity. It neither knows the scripture, nor does it know the power of God. And isn't that what Paul's talking about in the whole chapter of 1 Corinthians 15? Evidently, there were some saying, well, there is no resurrection or whatever that might be. Maybe it's already taken place. And, you know, always somebody messing up what Paul said. Always someone twisting the theology. But Paul in essence says our redemption absolutely demands a redeemer who is raised from the dead the first fruits of those who have believed if that is not true you have no hope think about that if that's not true you have no hope Paul teaches in Romans 6 Christ's death and resurrection are in reality applied to you and to me as believers in Christ now. 
You are dead to sin. You are alive to God, raised in Christ. This is the reality. And you'll know that reality more fully in that glorified, resurrected state one day. But it's true now. Not theoretically, really. When we partake of the the Lord's table and we're recalling and being reminded of God's covenant promises in Christ, that's part of it. That's it. That's everything. We live to God now by our union with the resurrected Christ. We wait eagerly for the redemption of our bodies, as Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 8. When we will be fully in the image of our Lord Jesus. So from Genesis to Revelation... God's redemption of sinners by grace through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ is the main storyline of God to man. Without fail, that's the scripture. And God has the power to bring it to pass. Please pray with me. Oh, Father, we are so... So grateful that we are not left to our own imagination or interpretation of what you have revealed. It's clear. It's a matter of whether we have the heart to believe it. And we know we don't give ourselves that heart. We are dead in trespass and sin. The spirit must come. And he must give us a new heart, eyes to see, ears to hear, that we might repent of sin, that we might place our faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, our glorious, resurrected Redeemer. Thank you that the Bible is so clear. We know, Lord, you take that wonderful good news of Christ, that gospel, And you bring it to bear on every heart. And in changing hearts, you do it through your word, this gospel, as it comes to the sinner. And they see themselves in need of Christ. We pray that if there are any here this morning, Lord, who are just now seeing who Jesus is, that you will bring them to faith. And that they might be added to our number here and that we may all, O Lord, be established firmly in your word that you've entrusted to the disciples and given to your church that we might know what being in communion with you and with one another truly is as we live in light of your death, Lord Jesus, and of your resurrection. So we praise you and we thank you, Father, and ask you to work through your word and accomplish your glorious work of redemption. Help us, Lord, continue in faith and be strengthened in our faith now as we partake of the Lord's table momentarily. In Jesus we pray. Amen.